0: Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for for singing, Phil and Sarah. Sarah Jane, I think it is, right? Is that right? Yeah, great. Well, if you are with us here this morning, would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2? Let's begin by reading our text. This morning we're going to focus on verses 4 to 7, but let's just read starting at verse 1, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, In Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come you might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, if you were with us last night, if you were able to be here, you saw that the dreadful condition of mankind in verses 1 to 3. Every man, woman, and child that comes into this world is born into this world in a fearful estate, a dreadful condition. We saw last night that man is dead in trespasses and sins. Even the most religious person is spiritually dead until they're born again. And a spiritually dead person lives in the realm of trespasses and sins. They willfully and deliberately break God's law. And even at the same time, they might be almost totally ignorant of the extent of their sin. And not only that, not only is man dead, but also man is enslaved. And man is in bondage to these powers that would keep him from turning to Christ for salvation. The devil, the world, and the flesh all keep man in a sort of a willing captivity. You know, usually when somebody's enslaved, they're enslaved against their will. But man, dead in his trespasses and sins, is willingly a slave to his own desires. And in this state, according to Verse 2, man walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, a reference to the the devil. And in verse 3, man lived in the lusts of his flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And all of this, the world, the devil, and the flesh kept man in this willing captivity. And what that captivity means and what that deadness meant was that man is headed to hell, verse 3 says, uh, at the very end of verse 3, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. God's wrath is his hatred for sin and, and uh, his justice coming together to punish man for his rebellion against God. And so man indeed is in a fearful condition, a dreadful condition. Man is dead towards God, alive to sin, treasuring up wrath for himself in the day of the wrath and the, the revelation of God's righteous judgment. And so what could be more terrifying? And worse yet, man has neither the ability nor the desire to free himself from this dreadful condition. And so the question is, how can man be saved? How can man be delivered from this dreadful condition? And that's the question that verses 1-3 to leave us with. How can man, dead in his trespasses and sins, be saved? And in our text today, we see God's answer. The solution to our dreadful condition is what we call God's dynamic action. And so in our text verse, this morning, verses 4 to 7, we see God's dynamic action. And this text is really about salvation. What we have in these verses are, are three glorious displays in the salvation of man. If you're taking notes this morning, that's our outline, three glorious displays in the salvation of man. And these are three sights or three visions or three things for us to behold in the salvation of man. And first, we're going to see God Himself. We're going to behold God, this great and, and mighty God who saves. Next, we're going to see what God does to save man. The action of God is going to be on display. And third, we're going to see why. Why does God do what He does? in our salvation and so three glorious displays in the salvation of man if you're taking notes this morning the the outline going to be this number one we'll see the author of salvation number two we're going to see the action of salvation and thirdly we're going to see the aim of salvation I'll, I'll give you those as we go again but the author of salvation verse four the action of salvation verses five and six and the aim of salvation verse seven The Ephesians needed to be reminded about the God who saved them. They needed to know what he was like, what he did for them, and what he would do for them in the ages to come. And many of you are in a similar condition to what the Ephesians were in. Perhaps God has saved you as he saved them. And like them, you need to know what you were saved from. Like them, you need to know what God is like. Like them, you need to know what God did when he saved them. And when he saved you and like them, you need to know what God will do in the future. And so this is for you if you're a believer in Christ today. These glorious displays are for your encouragement and edification. And the first one, as I said already, is the author of salvation in verse 4. God is glorious. And when we look at him in verse 4, we see his glory. And so God is on display in His saving work. Look again at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. And so salvation is really all about God. God is God-centered and, 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 and God-initiated. Salvation is God-centered, God-initiated. Salvation is God revealing Himself to the world. And salvation is God taking action to save sinful man for His glory. Verse 4 begins with a wonderful little word, but, but. If it wasn't for that little word, but, nobody would be saved. If it wasn't for that little word, but, we would all be in hell. If it wasn't for that little word, but, the infinite distance between God and man could never be breached. But, but introduces a, a contrast here, a contrast between God and man. We were looking at man in verses 1-3, to 3, and man is a sinner, and now we turn to look at God. We were We were looking at man, we were looking down into the grave, looking at man dead in his trespasses and sins, but now we turn up and we look at God. We we're looking at the holy God, the creator of life. We saw man spiritually dead, but now we see God, the author of life, physical and spiritual life. And so what a contrast this is in our text. Man is spiritually bankrupt, but God is rich. God is rich in mercy. Man is selfish and selfishly carrying out the desires of his flesh, but God is great in love. And so when we consider man in his fallen estate, we might very well wonder, why would God do anything to save us? Why doesn't God just leave us dead in our trespasses and sins? It was our trespasses and sins that offended Him and, and caused His wrath to burn against us. But so why does God do anything at all to save us? Why doesn't God just say to us what Jesus is going to say to some on the judgment day? I never knew you. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. What keeps God from saying what, what Matthew 24, 41, says, Cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or what about Matthew 25 and verse 30? Throw, him, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so what makes God look favorably upon us to deliver us from His own wrath? What makes God look favorably upon us? What keeps God from giving each and every one of us what we deserve? And what's the answer to these questions? It's God's own character. That is why God chose to become the author of salvation. You see, God was under no compulsion to save anybody. He could have left us all in our dreadful condition. But God didn't do that because God isn't like us. God took action because of who He is. And so again, the author of salvation is on display. Look look at the text again. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Now, I just need to admit here that I am woefully inadequate to proclaim the God's rich mercy and His great love. These are infinite realities. God's greatness is beyond searching out. His attributes are infinite and unsearchable, especially his mercy and his love. And so I'm just praying that God would give us some sense of these realities that we look at as we look at what the words mean and what they are. First, it says God is rich in mercy. This is who he is. This is what God is like being rich in mercy. God eternally exists in this state of being rich in mercy. And so when it comes to mercy, God is rich. He has an abundance of mercy. He has piles of mercy. He has tons of mercy. He has a, a bountiful supply of mercy. If you could open the door of God's character, mercy would come gushing out. And what is mercy? Mercy is pity or compassion towards somebody who is suffering. Mercy is an emotional concern for those in misery and distress. And the question is, well, why are we in misery and distress? And that's because of our sin, our own sin and disobedience, because we're working and living in this life uh, against the rules of our Creator, we have brought misery and distress upon ourselves in our sins. And God feels pity towards those who are in misery because of their sin. God Yearns with compassion for those who are distressed. And again, they're distressed because of the consequences of their disobedience. Mercy is always directed towards those who are troubled, those who are facing difficulties or distress or suffering or pain. And, And this understanding of mercy helps us see that sin always comes with a cost. Sin promises joy and fulfillment, but it can never deliver. Sin promises pleasure, but it results in pain. And so sin is costly. Remember Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. At the final judgment, the full and final penalty for sin will be demanded of all who have not taken refuge in Jesus Christ. But even before that final judgment, all sin has consequences. All sin brings suffering and distress and trouble. And so sin is a merciless master. The, the path of sin is filled with pain and it leads to hell. Now when God sees the results of sin in the lives of His creatures, He could easily think, they're just getting what they deserve. He could think, they're, they're getting less trouble than they deserve. But God doesn't do that. God is moved with compassion. And here, here's what makes God's mercy all the more remarkable Mercy, the, the Greek word for mercy, was only used for compassion towards somebody who is suffering unjustly. There, were, there was no such thing as mercy. There was no mercy towards one who is receiving the just consequences of their action. But God's mercy is so much greater than man's. God's mercy is on those who are suffering the just consequences of their sins. And, and God still has mercy on us, even though we deserve what we're getting. Now, as we think about mercy just kind of through the Scriptures, there's a, a great word in the Old Testament that I want you to learn. In, in Hebrew, the word is chesed. And in the, the New American Standard Bible translates that word chesed usually as loving kindness, loving kindness. It, it has the sense of loyal, faithful love that moves God to keep His promises, to act for His people. So God's loyal and faithful love that causes Him to keep his promises to, to act on behalf of his people. And in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the word chesed is translated with this word, the same word we see in our verse four, mercy. And so I just want to read you some of these Old Testament texts just to show you what God is like. That, that, again, that word loving kindness is that same word in Greek mercy. And so Exodus 34, 6 says this, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is our God. Psalm 103 verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Micah verse, chapter 7 verse 18 says, who is a God like you? who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of His possession. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. And that's that same word said, Unchanging love. Loving kindness or mercy. That verse goes on. He will ha- again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And so God is rich in mercy. God delights in showing mercy and pardoning sin. And according to our text, the reason God delights in mercy is because of His love. Look again at verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Because there gives the reason, God shows mercy. Love is what motivates God to have mercy on us. And this short verse is is packed with love. Notice it's the love with which he loved. And so God loved with love. And this is a a way in Greek to strongly emphasize something. Paul doesn't want us to miss God loves. God saves because God loves. And note too that it is a great love That He loves us with. There's a great love. There's there's love and then there's a great love. God's love goes beyond love and and, and God's great love extends to the heavens. God's great love is particular. Look at that. It's that He loved us. His love was directed towards the Ephesians whom He saved. And so the love with which He loved us. And of course, this love is best seen in that God gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, "...but God demonstrates His own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us." And so God sending Christ to die in our place, that is love. Jesus said, "...greater love has no one than this, than that one lay down his life for his friends." And so if you want to understand what the love of God is towards us, meditate on what Christ endured on the cross to save sinners. The greatest thing that Jesus could do for us was to lay down His life for us. And this love, this love of God is love towards His enemies. Love towards those at enmity with Him is what caused God to pity us and to save us. And so what a love we see in our Lord and in our Savior. What a what a great love with which He loved us. What a great God, an amazing God that we have who loves us like this, a God who saves us. He is the author of salvation. And His rich mercy and His great love didn't just stay within His character, but it moved Him to act on our behalf. And so the second glorious display in the salvation of man is the action of salvation we were just looking at the author of salvation now we're turning to look at the action of salvation starting in verse 5 even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus here is the action of salvation here is what god does and notice again when God does this. He, he does what is described here even when we were dead in our transgressions. You see, God doesn't wait for us to do something. God doesn't wait for us to take the first steps towards Him. If, if He did that, nobody would be saved. But instead, God takes action even when we were helpless, even when we were most needy. And in salvation, God makes us alive alive. And that's what causes us to respond to Him with faith. Before, before this happens, before what, what's described in verse 5 happens, we were dead. And God does three things according to verse 5 and 6. He made us alive together with Christ. That's number one. Secondly, He raised us up with Him. And thirdly, He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. These three actions, being made alive, being raised, and being seated, are further described in the exclamation that's in the brackets there, by grace you have been saved. And so made alive, raised with Christ, seated with Christ, is the same thing as being saved by grace. What does it mean to be saved? It means you are alive with Christ. It means that you are raised with Him. It means that you are seated with Him in the heavenly places. Now, in a minute or two, I'm going to explain what those three things mean, but I just want to show you the connection here with chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. So we're going to just go back a little bit, chapter 1, 19 and 20, and Paul is kind of repeating a little bit of what he said there, and, and he's he's showing the Ephesians what God has done for them. So in chapter 1, Paul is is praying, verses 15 to the end of chapter 1, Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and he wants them to know... He wants them to know really experientially the power of God. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. He's praying for them and one of the things he wants them to know is what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. So Paul's praying that the Ephesians would know the surpassing greatness of God's power that is towards them who believe. And the surpassing greatness of of God's power, again, is towards us who believe. That's the same power that God worked when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. So the the power of God towards us who believe, the Ephesians, is the same power that God worked when He raised Christ from the dead. And so if we continue on from verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so it's it's literally there. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the strength of his might when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him? And so can you can you see what's happening here? the the same power that raised Christ from physical death and made Him alive, that same power is working towards us who believe. That same power is what raised us from our spiritual death and united us with Jesus Christ. And so the same power that seated Christ at the Father's right hand far above all rule and power and authority, that same power raised us and seated us with Christ. And so if you are saved, you've been united with Jesus Christ by the surpassing greatness of God's powerful working. And it's this union with Christ, this, this joining together of you with Christ through which all the blessings of salvation flow. Scripture says that we have been crucified with Christ, that His death on the cross is connected with our death to sin. Because He died, we died. And because we're united with Him, when He died, He died for our sins, and our sins were connected to Him. Because we're united to Christ, His righteousness can be counted as our righteousness. And this union with Christ is how God can justify us. God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, or counts us as having the righteousness of Christ, or reckons us as having His righteousness because we are joined to Christ. Our union with Christ is very much like a marriage union. If you think about a marriage union, if a rich husband marries a poor wife with a load of debt, her debt becomes his and his riches become hers through that union. And, and really all the blessings of our salvation flow to us because we are united to Christ. But Paul only focuses really on one aspect here of this union with Christ, and that is the fact that God makes us alive with Christ, or God made us alive. We were dead, but God made us alive. And so do you see the, 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 the difference here? What, the, 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 the massive difference, the massive change in our state. We were dead, but now we are alive. Verses one to three describe someone's life when they are dead. And those things change when you are made alive. Without this life, without this being made alive with Christ, you are not a Christian. When God saves a sinner, He removes us from the state of spiritual death that we were once in, and He makes us alive. We were dead. Now we're alive. We were enslaved to the world, the devil, and the flesh. Now we have the ability to resist those temptations. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now we are alive with Christ. When someone becomes a Christian a fundamental supernatural change occurs. This doesn't mean that we no longer sin or but it, but it does mean a change of direction a change of desires. If you turn actually to the book of Ezekiel Ezekiel describes this transformation as well. Ezekiel chapter 36. <clears throat> Ezekiel calls this being made alive. He calls this receiving a new heart, and and the heart in scripture refers to our thinking, our desires, our affections, what we love, what we hate. And so we get a new heart. We have new desires, new affections, new way of thinking, new loves and new hatreds. Ezekiel thirty five, sorry, Ezekiel thirty six twenty five. Listen to to what he says there. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. God is speaking here to these people that He's going to save. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. Now there's a lot going on in there, but there's a a cleansing from sin. There's a a forgiveness of our sins. There's a a cleansing from idols. A a new love for God. Instead of loving idols, there's a a change and this this person, this born-again person, this person who's been made alive has a new love for God. There's a, a new heart. No longer a heart of stone, but a heart that responds to God and His Word and the holy spirit comes to live in such a one and god by grace brings about a new obedience i will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances second corinthians chapter 5 speaks about this same thing as well you don't have to turn there but second corinthians 5:17 therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creature the old things have passed away behold new things have come Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so for the believer, the old things that used to control us are done away and we are new creatures in Christ. This is what we call regeneration or being born again or being made alive with Christ regeneration the new birth the new heart new spirit being born again and when this happens to somebody it's going to be evident now maybe inwardly you might not feel any different when you're, you're regenerated we're not told to look for new feelings when we're regenerated but but there's a, a new transformation of the heart The person looks the same outwardly, but because there's a new desires in the heart, because there's been a change internally, it must be manifested externally. It will reveal itself. And it it reveals itself in in many different ways. Scripture talks about all kinds of different signs of this new birth, of this transformation. But I just want to give you a few just to help you see and, and examine your own life if you have been made alive with Christ. So I want to give you about four or five things, four or five signs that that will show you if you've been made alive with Christ. Now, as we think about this, first of all, when the new birth happens, it happens through the preaching of the gospel. First Peter 1.23, Peter says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. So you have been born again through the Word of God. The first response of one who is born again is to trust in Christ for salvation. So the preaching of the Gospel happens, God makes somebody born again, and they now respond to that Word. And it's even through that Gospel preaching that God works to save someone. Now tonight we're going to look at Ephesians 8 chapter 2 verses 8 to 10 and there it says for by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves it is the gift of god and so in in verse 8 in verse 5 what we saw in our text by grace you have been saved paul exclaims halfway through there in brackets by grace you have been saved in verse 8 he adds through faith faith is personal trust in christ coming to him uh, and it happens, this, this faith happens when somebody's spiritual eyes are open. When they're, when they're born again, they respond in faith. And so the first sign of the new birth is trust in Christ through the gospel. And so if, if you want to know, am I born again? Well, do you trust Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the gospel? Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Another sign of the new birth Not only faith, uh, faith in the Gospel, faith in Christ, but another sign of the new birth is a turning away from sin. The true faith always turns away from sin. True faith always is a repentant faith. And so if you turn to God in faith, you will always at the same time be turning away from sin. And so the new birth is a a heart change and this new heart can no longer live comfortably in trespasses and sins. Another sign for the new birth is love for God. When, when you're saved, our eyes are open to see God for who He is and to, to, to see God is to love God. And so to know God is to love God. And so a, a true believer, a, a born-again believer, joyfully lives their life as an act of worship to God. Another sign of the new birth is that the Word of God comes alive to us. Before salvation, the message of the cross is foolishness the message of the cross is a stumbling block but after salvation the bible becomes a new book because we're alive to see it to understand it god has opened our spiritual eyes i want you to just turn to first john chapter 5 and there we actually see almost all of these in one little text in verses 1 to 4 of first john chapter 5 1 John 5, starting at verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. For whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world Our faith. Again, we see numerous signs of the new birth in these verses. Whoever believes in verse 1 whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is or has been born of God. And so there we see faith. There's this person, they have been born of God, they are continually at this present moment born of God, and they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We also see here love for God, that whoever loves the father and and what it means to love the father is to observe and obey his commandments love for believers is also a sign of the new birth do you love god's people it's a sign that you're born from the same father and finally keeping his commandments is a sign of the new birth you're not just and, and not just keeping god's commandments not just doing duties but but keeping them, and it's not a burden to you. Keeping them, and it's actually a joy to you to live and walk in God's ways, that's a sign of the new birth. And so let me ask you then, are you alive with Christ? Have you been born again? Are you trusting Christ alone for salvation? Are you united to Him so that your sins are forgiven? Has His righteousness been counted as yours? Have you turned from sin to God? Have you repented? Do you have a new love for God in your life? When you look at your life, do you think, yes, I love God and want to live for Him, even if it means that I have to suffer. I want to live my life for God. Do you love Him who first loved you? Are the scriptures a a delight to you? Do you find joy in learning about God through His Word? And do you love the people of God? Do you joyfully obey God's commandments and and seek to walk as Jesus walked? If there's an ever-increasing sense in which those things are true of you and your life, then you can rejoice to know that you have been made alive with Christ and that by grace you have been saved. Elsewhere in Scripture, this is called eternal life. You've been raised with Christ to eternal life and you will never die. And notice that Paul views these as a, a past tense reality. Let's go back to Ephesians. These are all past tense verbs. We were made alive with Christ. You were raised with Christ. You were seated and you have been saved. Again, past tense, made alive, seated, raised, and have been saved, those are all past tense verbs. And so if God made you alive, He will keep you alive by that same power until He brings you to dwell with Him forever. And so we've seen God on display in His rich mercy and His great love. We've seen really God on display as the actor of salvation, as He acts and brings about salvation, making us alive with Christ. And now the third and final glorious display in the salvation of man is number three, the aim of salvation. And we see this in verse 7, the aim of salvation. All of who God is and, and what He does comes together for this glorious purpose. Verse 7, So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And here is the ultimate purpose for God's saving work yes God saves because of his mercy yes God saves because of his great love but even more ultimately in verse 7 we see that God saves so that he might set his glory on display for us to see so that at the beginning of verse 7 indicates the aim of salvation or the goal of salvation here is why God does what he does so that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace toward us in the ages to come. And so if you're saved, it's only the beginning. The, the glory of God that you have tasted is just the appetizer for the eternal banquet to come. God has designed salvation to reveal himself to us so that we could know him and enjoy him. And so never forget that the, the good news of the gospel is God himself. Having our sins forgiven, that's wonderful. Uh, heaven is gonna be amazing. Being born again is fantastic. Receiving the Holy Spirit is delightful. Never sinning again. That promise that we're never gonna sin again is gonna be an awesome thing. The, the myriads of, of blessing that come to us in salvation are marvelous, but never forget that the greatest blessing that we have in our salvation is that we've been reconciled to God so that we can enjoy Him forever. God is what makes heaven, heaven. And in the ages to come, He promises in verse 7 that, that He is going to continually reveal to us the surpassing riches of His grace to us in Christ. In other words, God is going to show us Himself so that we can delight in Him forever in the ages to come. And there's no greater treasure than God Himself. Knowing Him is the highest joy. Knowing Him forever is the supreme privilege of everyone who's been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We know Him now, but oh, we're gonna know Him so much greater then. We, we find our joy in Him now. Now we are filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And so what is our joy gonna be then when we're removed from this shell and we're, we're, delivered from sin, and we see Him as He truly is. What a joy we will have in heaven as we enjoy Him for the rest of our lives. And so here is the good news of the greatest kind, eternal fellowship with God in Christ. And so God has set Himself on display in this text for us to see. We have seen Him, the author of salvation, rich in mercy, great in love. We have seen His amazing action in salvation making us alive, joining us, us with Jesus Christ, and we've seen that the purpose of that is so that we would have an even fuller display of His glory in the ages to come. And so God has done an amazing work that we might enjoy Him both now and forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this amazing salvation that You have given us, that You have revealed Yourself, that You have, as You said in chapter 1, that You have revealed Yourself that, and the praise of Your glory in salvation. You have shown us Your glory, that You are rich in mercy, that You are great in love. You've shown us the glory of Your work, saving us by grace, making us alive with Christ, and You've done it so that You could do it even more in the ages to come. We thank You for such a great salvation. Those of us who are here who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but are now alive, we thank You. We we honor You. We praise You. We say we want to live the rest of our lives for Your glory because of that great salvation. Thank You for making us alive. Thank You for uniting us to Christ. And we pray that You would get the glory that You deserve out of the rest of our lives as we live out this salvation, as we live out alive with Christ before the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.